Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward, and in this episode, Bill Hosley and Betsy Fox, contributors to the summer 2016 issue of Connecticut Explored, debate the best place to find 100% authentic Connecticut. But first, it's pick your own season at Lyman Orchards in Middlefield, where it's a special anniversary. I sat down with John Lyman III, eighth generation descendant of the founder, to find out how they've managed to keep the 12th oldest family business in America fresh and growing for the last 275 years. It's quite a story, and it's coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. Give us an overview of Lyman Orchards on its 275th birthday. Well, today Lyman Orchards is a diversified business. Uh, People may know us from any one of the businesses we're in, whether it be golf courses, whether it be our Apple Barrel Market, our wholesale pies they can buy at Big Y or any other stores, uh, or the orchard where they come pick their own, or it could be our corn maze or sunflower maze. My guess would be that people have had one of those experiences, and then when they're here, they might discover all the other things that go on. So today, Lyman Orchards is very diversified. We really have gone through this transformation over the last 40 years, and, um, you know, the golf courses came on. uh, We got into golf courses in the late 60s. The Apple Barrel was opened in 1972. The orchards have been there for quite a while. We started in 1895 with peach orchards, and... uh, you know, that was a, a big crop for us back at that time. We had 500 acres of peaches here in Middlefield. And unfortunately, we found that Connecticut may be a little too cold to uh, grow peaches in every year. Uh, and we had a very, very cold uh, winter in 1917-18. It froze the trees, killed the trees. And for the next uh, five, six, seven years or more, we have transformed the orchards uh, over to apple trees. From peaches to apples. From peaches to apples. And that's how we became apple growers. Uh, And um, it was a big, big change and a big big question mark as to whether we could survive that. But uh, family persevered, and I think that probably is how you can describe Lyman Orchards. Why are we here 275 years? It's the family has persevered. They've been uh, very committed to uh, working the land and and, uh, seeing it uh, they turn the land on to the next generation uh, better than they found it. You know, as a historian, one of the things you notice is that there have been interesting transformations throughout the history of the Lyman farm. But let's go back 275 years to the very beginning. How did the Lyman family get their start in Middlefield? Well, uh, John and Hope Lyman purchased land, 37 acres at that time, and bought it from Ephraim Co. from Middletown. They were looking to establish, uh, you know, they were a young couple, uh, be independent from uh, his dad, who actually had gone from Durham to Torrington. And John chose not to go to Torrington and stay in Durham, and and Hope's mother was from Middletown, so they wanted to stay in the area. But they needed, obviously, to uh, have a source of uh, livelihood, and, and so they purchased the first 37 acres and began farming, and and that really was the start. 
Now, over their lifetime, they grew the farm larger, which I think that was the goal of many New England farm families. But few have actually lasted as long as lime and orchards or been as successful. What do you think has been the difference for your family? Well, I think, you know, the family, uh, as I say, has been very dedicated. Uh, They have a a true New England uh, grit. They have strong faith. So when they found things didn't go quite the way they hoped, they had a way of looking at a bigger picture. And I think that was important. I think innovation, uh, over the years, the family has has innovated, looked for opportunities, new opportunities. Uh, One of the interesting things back in 1700s, 1800s, was um, when the main way of life for many what was was agriculture was large families they could only support a certain number of members of that family and they had to look elsewhere for other farms and so the Lyman's actually had farmland up in uh, Vermont in New York for some of the siblings sons or daughters or sons particular to go the other thing is that in the early days the farming uh, they would find that uh, successive years of farming the land would uh, the land would lose its fertility. So it was not uncommon to be looking for new new virgin land. Yeah, in the in um, the late 1700s, early 1800s, there right. was a mass migration out of Connecticut exactly because of that. Exactly. Though. So um, so I think that, um, you know, the family has had to learn to adapt. And, and I think over the years, too, learned that you need to take care of the soil, you need to take care of the land to keep it productive, and uh, and at the same time, beyond agriculture, some of my direct descendants who really looked at other businesses too, and I think that was that was really important. Uh, as a historian, it's been fascinating to see the way that your family, through the generations, has seemed to sometimes reflect, sometimes anticipate, and other times even help create some of the great transformations in Connecticut and in American history. One of the things that stands out in the forms of maybe anticipating, was the role that your family played in the early move to abolish slavery in Connecticut. So it's a big story, isn't it? It is. And I think, again, that <clears throat> talk about the faith, uh, the family being strong, strong believers, and really William and his son David just could not see how slavery uh, was something that, that, that God had intended. And so they really took their stand based on, on their religious beliefs uh, as much as uh, just what was the right thing to do. And, and I think that that's been, again, characteristic of the family as they look, uh, look at what is beyond. Uh, yeah, and this was, this was three decades before the Civil War. And in Connecticut, abolishing slavery was a contested issue even right. at the end of the Civil War. So, right. so their early stand, uh, William and David's early stand on abolition was remarkable. Yeah. And it was kind of risky. Oh, absolutely. And, 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 a relative uh, to the Lyman family, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and we know uh, the role she played in this whole anti-slavery movement as well with Uncle Tom's Cabin, and her grandfather was Lyman Beecher. And so there is, uh, obviously, through the family, many courageous uh, individuals uh, over Very the years. Very interesting, so. a lot of connections, those right. genealogical family right. webs, right? Now, David Lyman, in addition to his work on abolition, also played a significant role in the early industrial revolution in Connecticut, didn't he? He did. He uh, again. He had a number of businesses that uh, were not, were not agriculture. He had a uh, washing machine company, the Metropolitan Washing Machine Company, up in uh, Baileyville section of Middlefield, which was driven by uh, uh, the water off of Lake Besick and the dams that were set up along that uh, Ellen Doyle Brook. 
and uh, at one point had a button factory, got involved in the uh, railroad and building a railroad through central Connecticut known as the Airline Railroad. That was really turned out to be a task that proved sure, to yeah. be exha physically exhausting and, and unfortunately uh, uh, probably was a cause for his early uh, death at uh, age right. of 50. But what a transformation the Airline Railroad did Absolutely. for this part of Connecticut. Right. He unfortunately didn't see its completion through central Connecticut, but uh, just a few years later they did complete the line, and as you say, it was, it was transformative uh, for central Connecticut. Uh, the, big, the big hurdle was getting across the uh, Connecticut River and uh, fighting the interests at the time of the uh, shipping industry who... Yeah, saw, the river was a small part of the battle, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they saw, they saw railroads as being a direct threat to, to their livelihood, and uh, so it was not easy to get approval to get across the Connecticut River, and, uh, but uh, they ultimately did and, and went through uh, right up to Willimantic and made a connection truly from New Haven all the way up eventually you could get to Boston through Worcester and um, so again that was the heyday of railroads back in the uh, late 1800s and uh, so while David may have been really thinking of trying to get his washing machines access to markets Charles Elihu uh, Lyman who succeeded him after his death saw this as a key to a real agricultural change he uh, began to transform the way the family had farmed. He did. I mean, I think, um, you know, back in the uh, 1890s, a gentleman by the name of J.H. Um, uh, Hale had a farm in Georgia and also had a farm in Glastonbury. And uh, he was familiar with peaches, growing peaches in Georgia. And he, he came and uh, got uh, many of the farmers interested in peaches, a very valuable crop. And they looked at uh, Connecticut being an ideal uh, place between two large markets, Boston and New York, and with a high uh, a high value crop like peaches that was that was also very perishable, uh, so it was difficult to ship it from say from Georgia to these markets. Uh, they believed that they could um, do a much better job growing and get closer. So to the by market. growing it locally, they could capitalize exactly. on fresh peaches. Right. So. So there was a lot of peach growing in Connecticut yeah. at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, in fact, Connecticut at that time was the second largest peach-producing state in the country behind Georgia. So uh, you talked a little bit before about what happened to that business. Right, so, yeah, who would have known and at that time when they were putting that much acreage in that uh, that was not a very wise thing to do. Uh, and they found out, obviously, the hard way at uh, Connecticut's climate of cold temperatures and peaches being more tender to the cold, it just was so, not. So what happened again with the... Well, the, fro the, the freeze of that winter was so, so cold that frost went four feet in the ground, which literally killed, killed the peach trees. Uh, and, uh, this is in 1917 or 1917, 18, 19, was yeah. that, that winter. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not sure they, at that time they knew how bad it was, uh, but they saw the peaches... So over the next two or three years, die completely, all die. So this great burgeoning business was wiped out really was, in one very terrible period of cold. Exactly. And uh, well, we still grow peaches today, but we don't grow 500 acres yeah. of peaches. We grow 30 acres. And so what did the family do? This had to be, pose a real threat. Suddenly right. something you've invested all this time and money in is dead on the ground. Absolutely. Well, uh, at that time, the family still had farms in uh, in Vermont, in well, actually, at that time, Pennsylvania and uh, New York. They had to sell those farms. They had to do everything they could to just 
kind of pull in their horns and find a way through. And at the same time, have the foresight to uh, look at, say, well, apples would be would be maybe the crop that we want to grow because it's hardier, uh, it's grown in northern New England, and it's been successful. So, uh, again, tremendous commitment to see that through and that transformation through. It was at the same time uh, that actually Charles Elihu died in the early 20s, and he had uh, three daughters and three, three sons. And my grandfather was the youngest of the three sons. And um, he uh, was involved in the farm from, from the beginning once he got out of college. Uh, the other two brothers were with, at that time, the gun site business. Um, and, that um, was another one of these That was another one of these, yeah, right. Uh, it was actually David's son, William, who discovered this unique uh, uh, design for a peep, peep site and uh, actually built a business out of that. He was very, very uh, inventive uh, and had a number of patents. Um, and so the, the gun site business did very well, especially uh, between First and Second World War, where a lot of their business was, was through the government. Uh, and uh, they did extremely well. So that business supported my uh, two uncles, my, my grandfather's two older brothers, uh, John uh, sort of got stuck with the farm, so to speak. Yeah, well, uh, when you think about it, that, that freeze happened right at the the peak of U.S. involvement in, in World War One. Right. So the gun site business must have been a... Right, it was you know, doing, very, doing yeah. very well. And um, but my grandfather at that time, uh, beside, beside the orchard, diversified and got into dairy uh, and built a purebred Guernsey herd. Uh, and we had that until the uh, until the early 1960s. He did something else that I think is really impressive too. He, he picked up on cold storage technology right in the middle of the depression. Yeah, well, it, you know, I, uh, you, it's interesting to watch the progression of the uh, of the fruit industry. And you know, if you think about all these peach orchards, they got planted to apple trees, and at that time they were planting uh, standard trees, which took. 10 to 12 years before they really started producing. Well, if you, if you do the math, that puts you right into the early 30s, and suddenly all these big, huge crops of apples, apples were coming along, and they just had no way of being able to handle it all at one time and sell it. So they needed a way to store it, uh, and cold storage was a, a, a solution. So this was partially a reaction to an oversupplied market. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And uh, it's just very interesting to watch how um, those needs developed and then there was there was uh, reaction to it, and that's how the industry has moved along. We saw a similar thing as, uh, the, again, the need for extending the season, very important in this development of cold-controlled uh, atmosphere storage uh, back in the 1950s. Uh, and suddenly the industry started to build these cold storages, which also had the ability to be sealed off and uh, bring the oxygen below 5%. So the apples would stay fresher. Stay, stay fresher and get them, extend the season even further into the spring market. Now, was that your grandfather who did that? or? Well, your... my grandfather uh, and, and my dad. My dad at that time was back on the bu- in the business, and so uh, we built our first controlled atmosphere storages in the uh, early 1960s. Uh, at the same time, uh, my dad was uh, very much a visionary about uh, needing to develop uh, more direct sales to customers, and uh, so he was uh, focused on building a retail market uh, 
there are these two really kind of wonderful transformations that it seems like your dad anticipated. One was the importance of leisure as we became a kind of leisure society, and the other is this this transformation into a local market. And he, he did both together at right. the same time. Yeah, my dad, uh, one of the things that I think uh, he, he possessed a, a very uh, broad view of, um, of land use, and he understood that the value of, of the business and what we are, our greatest resource of land, the value is, is how, to, how to effectively use it, how to productively use it. So he looked at, he looked at his open space use, not necessarily agriculture, but open space use. And so as we, the opportunity became available for us to uh, take, which at that time was excess land from the dairy, and look at uh, other uses, the golf uh, in that lens makes a lot of sense because, again, it's, a, it's an open space use of the land uh, and a productive use. And it was on acres that we really couldn't grow uh, fruit trees on because they were in the lower valleys where you don't grow fruit trees in lower valleys because of frosts and things. So, again, looking at how to productively and effectively use all the land and what, you know, what other uses beyond agriculture. And I think that's what he... Uh, that's what he really was a visionary with, and and not um, not too close-minded to anything. But as long as it was a good, effective use of open space, then we should consider it. So, while you're transforming the place, Lyman Orchards is becoming this wonderful destination for families. And today, you know, what are all the things a family who comes here can do? It's, it just amazed me to look around and see all that there was on offer. Yeah, well, I think, it, again, it's, uh, you know, between whether go to the corn maze or the sunflower maze or, or, or go to the store because you want to get that apple pie or you want to get the cinnamon cider donuts uh, or you want to smell the aromas from the bakery. Uh, or oh, you, you're making me hungry. Yeah, now. <laughs> or you want, to, you want to go up and pick your own. You know, we started to pick your own really in, a, in the late 1960s. Uh, and some of it was really due to, uh, I know in particular, we had, uh, we had a hailstorm and we have actually opened the orchards for the peaches, uh, when really not a lot of people were offering pick your own for peaches, but we, again, a necessity kind of creating a, a need, uh, you know, and so you, you, you know, necessity is a mother of invention. I mean, you, you rea- react and suddenly it works and you say, huh, that's interesting. So the appeal of picking peaches became very, very clear. Uh, and But we did it because we had no other way to use the hail-damaged fruit. It was perfectly fine, but it was marked and wouldn't be saleable to uh, to the wholesale market or even to the retail market. But people had no problem coming and picking it uh, and getting good value and uh, taking it home and canning it or whatever they might do with it. So that was, you know, our foray into pick your own peaches. Apples, you know, we, we realized that there was a demand for people to come out to the orchards. And it was interesting, in the early days of pick your own, people did it to save money. Uh, you know, and so their expectation at that time was it would be uh, cheaper than they could buy it in the store. And, you know, because they did the translation, I'm doing the work, so I should pay less. And, and that's how it really started. And at that time, people... Uh, did a lot more with with fruit, whether it be canning, uh, storing it for the winter, or whatever. Uh, that's changed, and we started to see that change happening in the 80s and 90s, where suddenly our, our uh, customers seem to be more interested 
and coming out for the experience, bringing their families out for a beautiful fall uh, weekend day. Um, and we saw that. And, and today we, we consider pick your own really as part of, we, you know, we use the term agritourism uh, or agritainment, either one, but that's what it is. And the corn maze obviously fits in that too. But pick your own now is, that's an activity for the family to enjoy together. Well, and Lyman Orchards uh, is, a, is a fall institute. Well, it's a year-round institution, right. but in the fall, it's just amazing the number of people who are here. Yeah, and we found for our pick-your-own uh, business, it was important to build a, build a, uh, a, a broader, uh, longer program. So it's a five-year or a five-month program here at Lyman Orchards. We start with the strawberries. And then we get into raspberries and blueberries. We have, early, you know, peaches coming in in early um, early July, and then apples and pears later, and pumpkins in the fall. Obviously, as you said, the harvest uh, September and October are really the two busy, busiest times of the months of the year for us. But certainly, by offering pick your own for five months, we're bringing people out to the farm uh, more than just during the, that fall season, and that's been important too because it helps build traffic into the store, uh, our golf business, again, a nice diversification to uh, bringing people to Lyman's for reasons other than just, you know, the farm. Well, and, and you, you have these, you know, these two exceptional golf courses, plus you opened a nine-hole golf course recently and, and did a, you expanded on golf in a new way a few years ago, didn't you? We did. We did. Well, I think, again, the family, one of the things, again, if, there's a, if there is a uh, characteristic to the family uh, over the years is, is desire to do things right. And I think that uh, our choosing to go with two really well-known architects for our golf courses was, was really uh, indicates that that's something that family finds very important. Uh, Robert Trent Jones, uh, probably at the time, the family had not nearly as much appreciation of how legendary he was. There were a few in the family who did understand it, but uh, but they decided, that, you know, that was an investment. But they understood that, you know, doing it right uh, would stand the test of time. And uh, we're the only public Connecticut golf course that's a Robert Trent Jones uh, design. So. Uh, and they're not building any more yeah, uh, yeah. of Robert Trent Jones Sr. So uh, Gary Player was the same same vein, a very well-known uh, world, world golfer, uh, well-known uh, world, world-renowned golfer, and he uh, he was getting into the design business, and he, he made a visit here. We really liked the, his enthusiasm. We liked the way... Uh, he saw the opportunity for creating a really nice design with the land that we had available. And um, so, again, that just seemed to be a nice connection. Plus, it was a different design. So now we have the offer of, for our golfers to play two different courses. Very, and you have the nine-hole course. And the, the nine-hole course we built, uh, just opened that about three and a half years ago. And uh, that was designed to address what we see a need in the industry uh, or in the golf business right now, and that's building new golf golfers. Uh, the, the entry for new golfers has not been what we feel it should be. And we think some of it is, well, there's a couple factors. One is the intimidation factor to a beginning golfer uh, not feeling comfortable playing an 18-hole uh, regulation course. Uh, the other th- would be just affordability. Um, 
you know, golf uh, can be expensive, so uh, we uh, built a facility that uh, would be less for greens fees. Uh, and time, time is a major element today, uh, and so people can play uh, our nine-hole course in about an hour and a half, whereas a, our typical uh, nine-hole on our regulation courses would take two, two and a half hours. Um, we think there's, there's, we have all solutions for all golfers. So if you're a serious golfer, we got our 18 holes. And if you're a beginning golfer, we have the Apple nine. And what we're hoping is out of those beginning golfers, whether it be young, young people, or whether it be women, uh, who are intimidated, they start to play, they start to love the game because the game is a wonderful game and it's a lifelong game. And when they get that bug, uh, and they continue to want to be challenged, we have two very good courses, 18-hole uh, courses. For and them you see to. that happening, right? We're seeing that happen. Since we've opened, we've actually had kind of progressive classes, instruction, and people, as they get more comfortable, we're actually moving them up to the 18-hole uh, courses, and they're, they're really enjoying it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, again, the game, the game of golf, the industry, has been struggling and, and trying to come up with solutions. And we just felt... This one made a lot of sense. We had the land available. Uh, the project actually had been in a, you know, in a planning stage for over 10 years, uh, and we had the permits, and we felt before we ran out of the permits, this, this would be the time, even though at that time no one was building golf courses. This, this goes back to 2011. Nobody was building golf courses, but we felt, you know, why should we, why should we be like everybody else? There you go. Well. So, and that's been part of our you know, we, we do some things maybe against against the norm, and I think sometimes we those those have really paid. Sometimes they haven't, but we we're resilient enough to figure out if it didn't work, how do we modify it, or how do we go a different direction and get on with it. So, well, something's working because you're the eighth generation of the Lyman family to work in these orchards, and and there's another generation coming along. We do. We have a ninth generation. Uh, my kids, uh, my siblings, my cousins, their kids, uh, and we actually have two in the ninth generation with our in the business today. Uh, I have a nephew uh, and I have a, a cousin. And um, we had, uh, last summer, we had a ninth generation shareholder conference. Uh, and the intention there is to recognize that, you know, well, we want to pass this on to the next generation and we better start doing a better job of, of getting the ninth generation familiar with our business and uh, and start that that transition process of you know g gaining experience getting to know the business what we really were pleased with is that the, the level of enthusiasm that they have for this business and the commitment they have it was really it was it was just something uh, that we really noticed right away and, and we were very encouraged with Absolutely. and um, but, you know, we all like to think we're going to live forever. Well, we're not going to live forever, and, if, and there is a next generation. There's an interest. Uh, but, like, when I was young starting, I needed some, some, some experience, and I needed some people to kind of take me under their wing as well. And, uh, and that's what we're hoping to do for this next generation. So, What does it mean to you to be a lineman and to be making your livelihood and so many of your family's livelihood on this land that's been part of the family for so long? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as I was finishing college myself, I mean, what would I do? And um, I, I've discovered, first of all, uh, that I love agriculture. Even though I didn't study it, uh, I grew up with it, and, uh, and, I, and I just love it. 
And I, so I, I just felt this was, you know, something I could really enjoy for my lifetime. But also that tradition, uh, it wasn't a burden, but it was something I thought this is really important. It was a responsibility, if you will, uh, to say, you know, I, I, I can really get myself committed to this because it's really important. And it's not just me, obviously. I mean, I never saw it as it, this is bigger than any one individual. But it's important that you have the commitment and the responsibility. And I felt that others in the family have felt that as well, and they've taken different leadership roles along the way. And so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that tradition, uh, I've often said, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a great guidepost. Uh, you know, it, it gives you the confidence that, you know, that you can do it because you didn't know the difficulties and the challenges that were facing in the past, and it's something you want to continue. At the same time, you know, the history of the Lyman family has been that of innovation, so you don't want to be burdened by just doing it because we've always done it that way. Uh, so that, again, the history of the Lyman family being innovative, being uh, uh, creative and, and finding ways to adapt it's that balance between it's that tradition balance. and innovation, right. right? And continue that, and you can find that balance. And that's, I guess, what when I look back at the Lyman family, they have found the balance. So, yeah. so imagine with me that the original John Lyman came back now after 275 years and stood on the top of one of those hills and looked around. What do you think he'd say? What do you think he'd feel? Uh, he probably wouldn't recognize a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, you can uh, obviously the the whole country. Uh, we weren't even a country back then, uh, so who could see that? And then to know what we would transform into, and and uh, you know, just uh, just these new ge- these new crazy generations and what they're doing. And uh, but no, I think uh, I think he no no doubt would would find it remarkable and and be very proud of of. Uh, you know his his family and and staying with it and and seeing uh, the value and again appreciating all his hard work and what he put into it and then successive generations after that. So I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me down here. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Well, thank you. Next up. Find out where to find authentic Connecticut and how to find it in just one day. Hi, this is Jennifer LaRue, editor of Connecticut Explored, sitting here with Elizabeth Norman, who's our publisher, and our guests Bill Hosley and Betsy Fox, authors of stories in the summer issue of Connecticut Explored. Today we're discussing what's it all about, the big themes and favorite moments in this issue, which is all about small towns, big stories. Bill is a cultural resources development and marketing consultant, and Betsy Fox is museum and historic sites consultant. She curated the Norwalk Collect exhibition. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Hey. So let's jump right in. Um, Bill, you have kind of adopted this eat local mantra of the slow food movement and kind of adapted it to history. In other words, you assert that the best history is local history, and the more local, the better. If you were to send a newcomer to the state to the number one history site in Connecticut, where would it be? Seeing how my wife is the director of the Windsor Historical Site, I'd be in trouble if I didn't say that was number one. There's so many great things, great places to see. If you're looking for kind of Newport grandiosity, 
you can't do better than the uh, Lockwood Matthews Mansion in Norwalk. If you're looking for a kind of a revolutionary war uh, uh, insight into the period and times, uh, the Webb Dean Stevens Museum in Wethersfield is great. I'm a big fan of all things Victorian, so I kind of love Roseland Cottage in Woodstock. I would agree with Webb Dean Stevens in Wethersfield. I think that's a, a nice little day trip. There's a lot to do in that area. I think there's five historic houses. They have great architecture, a fabulous green right on Broad Street. Um, but I'd also recommend the Lebanon Historical Society. There are a number of sites there. Uh, Jonathan Trumbull Senior House. They have the, the uh, War Office, the Visitor Center, which is also the Lebanon Historical Society. And the largest green in New England is located there. But I would also suggest a trip to Norwich which I think is absolutely fabulous for, for looking at architecture. And there's the Slater Museum, there's the Faith Tremble DAR, as, as well as, I believe, Four Greens, if you want to go exploring. And they also have a rose garden. So. In our current issue on Small Towns, Big Stories, we asked you, Bill, to put together a top ten list of objects from small museums. And one of those is a capital from a pulpit from Torrington's first congregational church, torn down already more than 180 years ago. Yeah, it's elaborately carved. It's actually, it's a work of art. It's kind of impressive. These pulpits that were in every church in every town in Connecticut were the most ostentatious and impressive wooden objects that that, uh, that culture produced, and none of them survived, almost none of them. Uh, and so this is just a piece, but it's very, very suggestive, and it has kind of a paint and carving, and it's great. You uh, chose a wingback chair, I guess you'd call it, from Putnam Elms in Brooklyn, Connecticut. It's about circa 1750, and it's a form that's very familiar and still available. Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware are both selling multiple versions. What caught your eye about this chair and made you include it in our photo essay? You know, Putnam Elms, to start with, is, is just this remarkable property in the little town of Brooklyn, Connecticut, and it has a fascinating story. It's really the only historic site or the main historic site associated with General Israel Putnam. The, the site is just loaded with history. And the, these were really almost aristocratic rural people in the early mid, middle of the 18th century who uh, they had this 3,000-acre uh, plantation and lived kind of like royalty, in the, kind of in the backwoods, if you will. And the uh, Daniel Putnam's wife was uh, uh, a Boston big shot. And I believe this chair probably came into the marriage and into the family uh, at that time. And it's, you know, about a 1750 Boston easy chair. They're not that rare. There are probably 50 or 60 of them known in various museum and private collections. But they're probably less than five that have original upholstery like this. So even though it looks a little shabby, what's amazing about it is that it's never been reupholstered, refinished. It's really, really untouched. And for people interested in the history of textiles and technology, this is a kind of a Rosetta Stone. It's really special. So Betsy, you wrote for us for this issue about a high chest that seems to be one of those lost in plain sight kind of stories. After all, we're talking about a large piece of furniture. <laughs> Why was identifying the maker of that piece so exciting to you? And can you kind of walk us briefly through the story? Well, I first saw the, the piece in a thumbprint photograph on an accession card. I was reviewing the um, 3,000 accession cards for the objects owned by the Norwalk Historical Society and the Norwalk Museum for the exhibit, Norwalk Collects, 
And I was somewhat intrigued because it said on the accession card that it was made in Newport, Rhode Island. And I looked at the piece and I could, just by that little picture, I said, that is not Newport. It's probably Connecticut. So we had, we had to wait for the things to be moved out of storage to look at it. And it was undoubtedly Connecticut. But, but in the meantime, we also did research and determined that the signature on it was not Samuel Moody of Newport, who was a well-known Newport cabinet maker, but rather was a Zemri Moody, who was a, a cabinet maker first in uh, Farmington, Connecticut. And this piece, uh, dated April 27, 1766, would have been made shortly after he moved to Woodbury, Connecticut. Seeing that Z instead of a S or an L, um, and then making out that I and the M and the R and then the other I, we were dancing in the storage room, realizing that we had found a fairly important piece. And it's important because not only is it you know, signed by the cabinet maker, and it's quite early, 1766, to have those fairly sophisticated ball and claw feet and, and card shell. We were also make, able to make the genealogical connection between the cabinet maker and the Lockwood family, uh, where uh, it descended. One of the things that is exciting about uh, early furniture is is you know, all these towns supplied their their own needs for things like this. You know, today everything we own is imported from somewhere, half of it from China. Uh, and you know, two hundred years ago, Connecticut uh, communities, families. Uh, they made their clothes, they produced their food, they made their furniture, they built their houses out of tree from trees that were usually not too far away. So there's a real sense of locally ground a locally grounded economy. And furniture, I think, s- expresses that more uh, beautifully than any other art form. Can you tell us a little bit, Betsy, about the exhibition Norwalk Collects, celebrating four historic collections? And- the Norwalk Historical Society took over the operations of the Norwalk Museum, and about the same time they were also given the collection of the Daughters of the American Revolutionary chapter in Norwalk, and they had the Lockwood collection. So I was asked to actually look at the four collections and do an exhibit that celebrates these four collecting institutions in a fairly small space. So there are um, 35 objects in the exhibit. Open House Day is coming up on June 11th. Um, Bill, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that is? I think this is the 10th or 11th year that the Office of Culture and Tourism uh, State Agency has uh, organized this big Connecticut open house. It's one day a year. And one of the things about some of these small museums is... They're not open all the time. The great thing about Open House Day is the one day of the year when most of the small museums are open. And the fact that they, most of them are also free on that day is an added dividend. So it's June 11th, and what I like to do is chart out an itinerary, start one place and see how many I can knock off in a day. Most years uh, that I've done this, I've done four or five in, in a day. And many of them open, some of them open as early as nine, and some of them close as late as five. And there's just extraordinary stuff everywhere. And the thing that's neat about Connecticut is the diversity of it. You can, you can, you could almost throw a dart at the map and just say, all right, I'm going to do a 20-mile radius around that, wherever that lands, and see what's open. You can go on their uh, website, ctvisit.com. Uh, and, and go on there, and, and it lists everything that's going to be open, what their hours are, and if they're doing anything special. Everything is close. You know, no matter where you are, uh, very few 
towns are more than an hour away from any other town. So you can pick an area and, and, and really explore it and learn a lot about different parts of Connecticut. And these local history museums are really the best way to learn about places. I think that the communities tell their stories uh, in these uh, local community-based organizations. So it's a joy to do. Well, I agree with Bill. It's, it, this is an opportunity to, to cover a rather small geographic area and hit as many um, historic house museums as you can. I usually aver average about five or six as well. I mean, both Bill and I ran into each other last year in the Naugatuck Valley. We were hitting the same museums and comparing notes as we saw each other. This year, I plan to go down to Niantic. I have never been um, to one of the houses there. And I'm going to Stonington because I've never been to the Nathaniel Palmer house. And then up to Franklin to the Franklin Historical Society that just is an historic house that's opened. And that will knock off, um, I, there's a, 211 historic house museums open to the public in Connecticut and I have 12 left to see. <laughs> so I'm going to see as many as I can on open house day in, in uh, New London County. You, people will say, well, you've been to one, you've been to, seen them all. I've seen one, you've seen yeah. them all. They all have spinning wheels and blah, blah, blah. I have never been to a uh, community, you know, local museum where I didn't make some discovery and usually a handful, things I've never seen. And, you know, to me, this sort of network of community-based local museums, this is what the Smithsonian wants you to think they are, but they're not, except... If you could get into storage, maybe they would be, but since 95% of what they own is in storage, you're not going to get to see it. Where 90%, for the most part, these local museums show everything. You know, you go, you see everything they've got. Sometimes they're not always the most high-tech presentation style, but the discoveries to be made are extraordinary, and it really, it's like time travel. I mean, you, you find everything from kitchen aids and and uh, technology to, again, furniture and costumes. And, I, I, you know, I just, I just love that sense of the hunt and discovery. And, 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 uh, and also, again, the diversity of Connecticut. A couple of years ago, we did a loop uh, along Route 160 in eastern Connecticut. And I'd never been to the Tantaquidgen Museum, which I know is, you know, featured as an article in the current issue about, about them. And... Uh, this there is a great story there, and boy, do they have stuff. Uh, uh, Gladys Tantaquidgen and the uh, tribal elders began collecting, I think, in the thirties, forties, and so there's it's Harold really, Harold Tantaquidgen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's really great. In your article, um, you also mentioned something about the people um, who represent these historic sites. And it's always a blessing, in my opinion, to a, a community if there's somebody locally that really is passionate about local history and, and, and does the kind of rooting around and research and caretaking that is involved in keeping all that kind of stuff alive. And, you know, to me, I, I call these people the rememberers. And when you visit a place, often they're the ones you meet. And to engage these caretakers, if you will, the people that love this stuff, most of whom are volunteers uh, who are deeply rooted in their community, it's, it's, that's half the fun to me is the interaction with the people that you meet. That point that you made, Bill, I, I think circles back to the beginning of this conversation where if you had a, new, a newcomer to Connecticut and you wanted to introduce them to really what is Connecticut all about really as this sense of place, where could they go find it? Do you send them to any small historical society, talk with these 
community remembers, and they're really going to begin to get a real wonderful sense of what it, what Connecticut is, what makes it unique. You know, if you were had a newcomer and you were trying to suggest, okay, where do you start? Uh, you know, all towns are not equally endowed with riches. Let's be honest about it. And uh, uh, every there are interesting things everywhere, but some places are so concentrated. There's so much there. Norwich is a perfect example. I think Hartford and New Haven are. Uh, there's a lot here in Windsor, but if you go into eastern Connecticut, you mentioned Lebanon. I think out in the Litchfield Hills, Litchfield itself is sort of astonishing. Uh, Salisbury, Sharon, Cornwall. I mean, they're, you know, in the, in the Naugatuck Valley, um, uh, Naugatuck, Ansonia. I mean, go to, the, go to a place and don't just visit the museum. Uh, poke around the graveyards, look at the architecture, try to get a feel for what made this place tick. A lot of the local historical sites also um, do walking tours or they provide a walking tour for you. I know that the Naugatuck Historical Society has a fabulous walking tour that you can take yourself. Drop by at their visitor center on Church Street, you can pick up a, a brochure and, and do it. And you're going to see five buildings designed by the firm of McKim Mead and White. Um, it's just a wonderful place to visit. And it's interesting. I remember years ago, Betsy and I worked on a project at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and we had a consultant, a professor from UConn, who uh, I remember having this conversation. He thought it was bewildering, this notion that you could read history on the landscape, that the history wasn't just in books, that you could actually sort of visually absorb a sense of where a place, what its journey had been. And, you know, there are a lot of towns in Connecticut for better or for worse, that had amazing industries that have lost those industries. Textiles in the east, silver in places like Wallingford and Meriden, uh, carriages in New Haven, Hartford made guns. And the evidence is still right on the surface. You don't have to look that hard to see what these places were about. And it, to me, that's a real joy. Well, thank you both so much for spending this time with us. And this issue is available at ctexplored.org. Also, at that site, you can subscribe to the magazine or you can buy back issues. For more information on the exhibition Norwalk Collects, you can visit norwalkhistoricalsociety.org. And I'd like to take a second to thank the Windsor Historical Society for letting us record this podcast in its offices. Tune in again. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank John Lyman III in Lyman Orchards, Bill Hosley, Betsy Fox, and the Windsor Historical Society. In the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, more stories from Connecticut Explored's summer issue about small towns, big stories. To read stories featured in Grading the Nutmeg and to subscribe to Connecticut Explored or purchase the current or a back issue, visit ctexplored.org.